You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 15th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. I would prefer to be referred to as Captain Novella. Yes, I know you would. And joining us as a special guest rogue this week is Richard Saunders. Richard, welcome back, man. I'll get you one day, Captain Novella. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi, rogues. Hi. What's up, Richard? Hello. Hey, well, nice to, Richard, nice for to be you, back it's, it's Thursday morning, right? It is. It is. It's Thursday morning around about uh, 10 a.m. I've dragged myself out of bed to be a, a guest rogue. At 10 a.m.? You had to drag yourself at 10 a.m.? Well, I'll, te- I'll tell you why. i tell you why. Uh, because part of the job of being a podcaster is occasionally you have to do things at weird hours. And you have to do podcasting at weird hours, too. But So to, uh, uh, some hours ago at 1, 2 a.m., I was interviewing Michael, our friend Michael Marshall in Liverpool. So oh, that's yeah. why I Marshall. dragged myself out of bed. We're having Marshall on the show, I think, next week. Excellent. He's uh, got some good news about homeopathy in the U.K., but we'll get to that next week. Cool. I'm sure that's what you were talking to him about as well. It was. <laughs> yeah. See, I like to try and gazump the, the uh, SGU whenever I can. You <laughs> well, you're, you're always in the future, so we can never catch up to you. <laughs> That's true. Hmm. However, however, in one respect, we're ahead of you uh-huh. in that I understand that this coming Sunday is the Skeptic Zone's 400th episode. Yeah. Yeah, I'm catching up. I am catching, catching up to up. you <laughs> <laughs> I think it works in about three centuries. I'll overtake you, but at the moment, yeah, we're coming up to uh, episode four hundred, which, as you know, Steve represents um, no small effort on the Skeptic Zone oh, yeah. team Huge. to get that out. And, and I think in the almost eight years, the only time I missed a week was show two. So it was show one, my memory tells me, and then two weeks later, show two. But uh, apart from that, every week now for almost eight years, there's been a, a Skeptic Zone uh, episode, and uh, I've got the gray hairs to prove it. I can tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, you know, Richard, you know, we like to say that because it's a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice to to keep going every week, no matter what happens. And I didn't know that about you guys, and th- that's fantastic. I mean, four hundred, three hundred ninety-eight episodes in a row every week—that's a lot of work. Uh, and I think it also means that uh, the your audience and I hope hopefully my audience too get a respect that means that uh, we respect them enough that if they enjoy the show and they hopefully uh, expect one every week that's what they'll get uh, and there's no oh I don't feel like doing it this week and oh gee you know something was happening so so no matter what I think it's important to have that out so people doing their their regular commute or walking the dog or whatever they do at a certain time of week. Apart from anything else, they know that, uh, oh, there'll be another episode of SGU or uh, The Skeptic Zone will come out. And I think that uh, shows respect to our audience. Yeah, we, I, we get, I'm sure you do, like like we do. We get a lot of questions asking for advice. Oh, I'm starting up a podcast. Do oh, you yeah. have any advice yeah. for me or whatever? My number one thing always is you just have to be consistent. You know, like just showing up, that's 95% of the work. You know, and, and anything after that is gravy, really. So yeah. just be consistent, you know, to sub- Pick a schedule and stick with it, and that's critical. It is critical, and it's not easy. I must say, uh, lately, uh, I think the Skeptic Zone has pulled out some really good reports. And I'm only a part of the show, of course. I have reporters who do a wonderful job sending me reports. Uh, my friend Maynard is 
our main reporter. He does the fa- most fantastic interviews. But on show 398, only a couple of weeks ago, and if I was to recommend a show to anybody who hasn't heard The Skeptic Zone, I'd say have a listen to show 398 because we interview a UFO believer, which is a fascinating look into psychology, really. But then we have a story by our reporter, Heidi Robinson, who helps run the Northern Rivers Vaccination Network up in a part of Australia with a low vaccination rate. She reports on a meeting in Perth in Western Australia, the state of Western Australia, that was uh, more or less invaded by a gaggle of anti-vaxxers who shouted down uh, doctors on a panel talking to the audience about vaccination issues. And it's probably one of the better reports we've run on The Skeptic Zone, and it's so telling as to the mob mentality and the the, uh, lunacy of these people. It's frightening in a way. Yeah, uh, they're basically a bunch of jerks is what it comes down to. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I I say that – I mean, but it's – part of it is the – it's the self-righteous phenomenon when you think that you're fighting the holy war and you're absolutely right and the other side's absolutely wrong. Yes. That justifies – you getting rid of all sense of decency and morality and courtesy and everything else. So the latest, I think, example of this is the uh, 12-year-old uh, Mexican boy, Marco Arturo. You hear this story, Richard? I know. You have to bring me up to speed. He put up. He put out a video. Uh, you know, he's actually – he's 12 years old. English is his second language. He's already published a book on science, like a legit – you know, science book. Yeah. And he, he put out a video uh, basically making fun of the idea that vaccines cause autism. Oh, is, is he, he's holding up the, the book or the pages? Yeah. That are, yes, I have seen blank, it. The blank yes, pages. I've it's a clever it. little bit saying, yeah, there's no evidence that yeah, it's fun, vaccines yeah. cause autism. And it went viral because it was cute and clever. It's a smart 12-year-old kid who can, you know, who's articulate. And uh, the anti-vaxxers went apeshit. And, and they started attacking this 12-year-old boy you know, saying, oh, he's not smart enough to do this. His parents must be doing this. You know, he's a Mexican, so he can't have access to a phone or a computer unless he's rich, like, like, wow. getting, like racist. And, wow. Wow. And then, uh, saying, basically doxing him, publishing his, his, uh, address and like death threats, you know, like, yeah. threatening him and his family. So, yeah. you know, obviously that's the extreme, but th- this, this was not condemned by anyone in the anti, anti-vaxxer community. This is basically their core behavior. This, you know, they're jerks. That's that's just the way it is. And and it's interesting because it really does show to us that the, when the, there's the mob mentality and when people think they're on a crusade, really, yeah. you have to be very careful. Now, I, I happen to think that what we do is pretty important. I really do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. We seem to be on the right track, more or less. We have a good uh, uh, track record and science is proving itself again and again. But I, I never want to think feel like I'm on a crusade about what yeah. we do. You know what I mean? That, that's that's a, a human pitfall we must avoid. But uh, the other side, especially the anti-vaxxers, and, and you see it in, in other groups too, uh, they, mm. they really are. They really are on a very special crusade. And you can substitute uh, their belief system for, for a religious cult or something like that. It's the same mentality, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think the the difference between us and them, because obviously that comparison comes up a lot. It's like, oh, aren't skeptics on a crusade and aren't you yeah, doing yeah. the same thing? Aren't you tribal and, you know, all that stuff? It's like, well, all right, first of all, we're, we adhere to a process, not a conclusion. 
And that's a very important difference because yeah. part of that process is humility. It's doubt. It's like we're not sure. <laughs> this right. is, yes. You know, we listen to the evidence. You know, we could be wrong. So it's, it's very different than this absolute certitude that you're correct. And as a community, I mean, we are – I mean, tribal, we're, we're almost anti-tribal. It's, I mean, more than one person has characterized organizing skeptics as herding cats. Yes. We're, <laughs> you know, we're a group of people who don't like to belong to groups almost on principle. We're very self-critical. We're very splintered, you know, by the minute differences of opinion, of approach, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's Yeah, to, sure. to a degree that's actually frustrating. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge pain in the ass. To a degree, you're absolutely right. And I've, I've seen the frustrating side of it uh, over many years. But by and large, I'd rather have that with all its frustrations and absolutely. annoyances than this conformity from, from the other side. And uh, as I reported a couple of weeks ago on the Skeptic Zone 2, I went to a paranormal convention not far from Sydney where I was a guest speaker. That was a very interesting experience. But I sat in on a UFO spirit contact panel. And now you, you, and it was about as interesting as you can possibly imagine. And it occurred to me that uh, I didn't say anything. You know, I don't stand up and try to argue sense and logic. I'd rather sit down and listen to what they have to say and and make reports and 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 learn that way. But Mm. I thought it was very interesting that uh, at a skeptics convention, when something is said that is clearly wrong or misguided or someone's made an error, people people let them know. You know, people will let the speaker know, I've had it happen to me, and that's fine. That's part of the game. But I was listening to this UFO spirit contact panel, and the, the claims from the panel got more and more outrageous to the extent that they say that in the middle of Australia – uh, there's a secret U.S. Australian base, which there is. It's a communications intelligence gathering base. There's no secret about that. But they also there. They're breeding alien clone robots. Now, yeah, wait, wait. They're clone robots. How do you clone a robot? <laughs> robots don't have DNA. They're alien clone robots. That's it. You've got it. <laughs> now, now, see, Richard, I heard they were alien ninja clone robots. <laughs> uh, uh, Is that oh, true? But but the, the good news, we were told that they're vegetarian. Uh, <laughs> that's not now, vegan? Not vegan. Yeah, not that's vegan. Surprising. Not vegan. Now, the point is, Those of bastards. course, nobody in the audience said boo. Of course. And, but could you imagine if somebody made a... a some, a similar thing in one of our conventions, which I can't imagine. So it's an interesting mindset, you know, the differences between us. So no, we're not like that. We're all right. Well, like all, all right. Here's here's the the example though. Uh, Horgan, John Horgan, yeah. gave a talk at at Nexus, mm. and that resulted in like forty blog posts disagreeing <laughs> with him. I mean, <laughs> completely dissecting his claim. So that's kind of a more typical skeptical response. I think you're right, and uh, I, I heard firsthand about that from our. Friend and the president of Australian Skeptics, uh, Iran Segev, Iran, and he's yeah. also a reporter on the Skeptic Zone. Um, as is Dr. Rachie, of course, our good friend Dr. Rachie from the Australian Skeptics, and what a trooper she is. She hasn't been reporting as much lately simply because of her science work has taken uh, precedence over that, and that's totally acceptable. Uh, I can understand that. We've got great reporters like uh, Joe Alabaster, whose voice is just divine and does wonderful reports. So I'm lucky. I'm a lucky guy. That in the years I've been doing this, I've had a series of truly excellent people who have um, offered their services to to report for me. So um, it's great, and, and you know what I mean, Steve. You've got a, a team there that's uh, just fantastic, and uh, without them, there'd be no show. 
Yeah, I make do. <laughs> and that, that, in a nutshell, sums up my life. <laughs> no, obviously, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. There's having a good crew to support you is indispensable. Obviously, I couldn't yeah. do this. Couldn't do without. You know, yeah, and people that obviously I am comfortable working very closely with, and I completely trust, and we have a very good you know, relationship and rapport with, you know, basically my family and best friends. And Kara, you're quickly becoming family. Aww, I mean, right? You're you're no. basically our sister now. Yay! Isn't that nice? So yeah, but that just that just there's no other way to do it, right? We have to we have to be you know, you know friendly. I couldn't imagine doing this with somebody that. I didn't have a, a good relationship with. I mean, it's, it takes so much work. You're yeah, that would be together. hard. And yeah. we have to have fun. We have to have fun with each other every week, like clockwork. You know, of so course. How, how else are you going to do that? And we have to trust each other because you guys don't get to hear all the stuff we edit out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, I do from time to time. I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but thanks, Steve. Thanks for giving me the the um, time on your show to basically talk about my show. But uh, as Jay told me years ago, I think way back in 2008, I think the first time I met you guys, which was at a TAM, he said, we're all in this, we're all in the same boat. And there's no such thing. If one of us does well, we all do well. It's it's yeah, not a that's competition. It's always been our philosophy. A rising tide raises all ships. Yep. So anything to support all of skepticism. And we have been enlarging the pie. I don't think we're fighting over anything. I absolutely agree. And that's been – I think the last 10 years has totally borne that out. Richard, I was telling you that because I wanted you to buy me a drink. <laughs> I, I think it worked. <laughs> all right. Jay, this, this next item is very interesting and also very disappointing in a way. There might be a chink – in the nanotube armor. Tell us about that. Well, first, I, I want to apologize to Bob because, Bob, I know how much you love the idea of the space elevator, but I have some bad news, Bob. The space elevator is, is a proposed structure that's so tall it would enable us to bring things up to you know an altitude so high they're almost in space, and it would make launching things into space very inexpensive compared to how pricey it is today. It's a good idea, right? I think we've talked about it many times and it would help a lot. But the thing is, we don't have a material today that's strong enough to support the weight. So we can't build it. And carbon nanotubes, one of these new materials that have, that has been made over the past 10 years that's new, uh, it's been the wonder material that many of us hoped would be strong enough, you know, to give us the strength and power to build the space elevator. But Sadly, carbon nanotubes as they are today are, are not strong enough and there's some really interesting details here. So recent news is, is telling us now that if one atom is out of place during the manufacturing process, that the carbon nanotubes are more than half as strong as they are when they're, when they're made perfectly. And the tubes get their absolutely amazing strength from their atomic structure. That's where all that, that amazing power is coming from. Imagine a tube made of a single layer of carbon atoms. That's set up in a in a hexagonal grid. Like chicken wire. Exactly. And we can determine the strength of carbon nanotubes at about 100 gigapascals. A gigapascal, what the hell is that? Well, it's... All right, so here's the, here's the uh, official definition. It's a, um, a, sta- a standard international unit derived... Uh, a derived unit of pressure used to quantify internal pressure, stress, Young's modulus, and ultimate tensile strength. And, and in this case, the I think the important part is tensile strength. Yeah, which is the ability to resist being pulled apart, which is what you want in a cable. Yep. So that means at 100 gigapascals, 
that means that carbon nanotubes are probably one of, if not the strongest things on the planet. And the first problem, the first problem we haven't solved yet is that when we take these incredibly strong tubes and turn them into a fiber where we're taking a bunch of them and weaving them together, we lose 99% of the strength. And re- That's weird. Yeah, and researchers wanted to know why. So they studied the issue to find out you know, why there's this huge significant loss in strength. And they discovered that the flaw is in the manufacturing and it causes atoms to be out of place, right? So our manufacturing processes today, most of the, the ways that we build structures like this can't make it perfect. There's inherent flaws. And the changes, it, what, what's actually happening is it changes the shape of the tube, right? So the tube has a, has a very chicken wire look to it. But what's actually happening is it, it turns it into a uh, pentagon or a heptagon instead of a hexagon. So it cha- Is that because we're just not used to manufacturing at like the nano level? Yeah, yeah. Manufacturing processes are flawed. They're, they're, we can build them perfectly. We can do it, but it's really slow and it's expensive. Yeah. Now, this means in some places the tube actually has what we would consider to be a kink. And one of these misplaced atoms would cut the strength by 60%. The, the, and if you add more and more and more of these errors, it, the, the strength loss adds up. So it becomes more profound the more errors that there are in, inside the tube. Now, onto the scary stuff. This is the part that I find incredibly cool, but it's kind of scary. The kink is a weak point in the tube, right? It's a mispl- misplaced atom in one or more places in the tube, and it changes the actual structure a little bit, the, the actual way that the thing's laid out. Now, when researchers use simulations to test how the tube will behave under normal stress that we would use it for, they snap. And when one bond snaps, like the bond snaps, right? You just imagine like the, the atoms disconnect from each other. And when one of them snaps, it starts a chain reaction of snapping and and the bond next to it snaps because it gets too much weight put on it because the one right next to it broke. And they call this unzipping because the entire tube just collapses. Wow. So one, yeah, I don't want to ride that elevator. Right. No, so no. one misplaced atom is enough to weaken the entire tube. And it turns out it's difficult and very expensive to make them super, super refined and correct. And the bottom line is, you know, until that, until if we could ever make it so we could make these in huge volumes perfectly. Where we know they're perfect, not, yep, they're probably perfect, but we have to know that they're perfect. We really can't use these for, for high stakes things like the space elevator. But I don't think it's hopeless. So there's a couple of thoughts that I have that might rescue this application. So first of all, there's lots of other potential applications of carbon nanotubes that this would not interfere with. But, uh, in terms of creating super cables or super fibers, if you can get the error rate down enough so that you know you have enough strands where there like there's the occasional strand here and there that may be flawed enough of them will will be strong that the overall effect will be insignificant so that's one possibility but the other thing is what about just doping you know the adding different elements so that you're not it's not a pure carbon nanotube it's carbon nanotube it's other stuff in there that makes it more resilient so it it doesn't unzip, you know, with uh, mm, yeah. with little imperfections in the molecular structure. So it just means it's more complicated. I think. I think it's going to be more complicated to d- to design these kinds of materials for different applications. 
And, uh, you know, this is unfortunately a weakness in this, in the structure, the strength of this kind of structure. It's not resilient, basically. But I think that we can overcome that. I don't think that's, a, that's necessarily going to be a fatal flaw, but we'll see. This is, you know, again, the reason why I'm always cautious about any new technology, because until it's really been put through its paces, you never know what hidden vulnerabilities there are. You know, that's why you can't really predict how things are going to play out. You never know. Yeah, the unpredictable just seems to always crop up. Guys, this is a good example, though, of like that one little fatal flaw that ruins – it's like the battery. Oh, the battery is going to last 400 times longer or whatever. But I think because it's a manufacturing issue it and it's not uh, you know something wrong at at its core like the core concept couldn't scale up i think it's very possible that we could just f- make it less expensive to build it super correct and we're ready to go i just think it's going to be less expensive to fly to space soon and we won't need a space elevator i, I was about to say the same thing i think <laughs> well we don't know yet we're going to we have reusable rockets like we're going to figure out how to make rocket fuel cheaper and we're going to be using reusable rockets much more or lasers much more often. lasers lasers what if you ah. yeah you have a ship that sits on top of a really powerful laser and then it the laser shoots underneath it creating little micro explosions that propel it up. So anything where you're not carrying your fuel gets you away from the fuel equation yeah. and is hugely more efficient. If you're, because mm. you know, the fuel equation is you have to carry fuel to carry the fuel to carry the fuel. And, you know, so you end up, you know, carrying most of your fuel just to carry other fuel. And that's hugely inefficient. So anytime you can have propulsion where you're not carrying the fuel, itself, it's going to be massively more efficient. But anyway, there. this is the other thing is like we're thinking, oh, the space elevator is going to be the cheapest, most efficient way to access low Earth orbit. But we don't know that. It may, yeah. it may be utterly eclipsed by other technologies that yeah, just turn yeah. out to be more cost effective or whatever. It's way, way too early to, to say. I mean, it may be one of those things like the flying car that never manifests because it's just – it's while it's a, a sexy science fiction idea, there is something inherently impractical about it that we never overcome. All right, Kara – this yes. is, I don't think we've ever talked about the blood-brain barrier before on ESGU. Maybe we have. Really? But oh, tell us neat. about that and why it's a problem and what we're doing to overcome it. Yeah, okay. So the blood-brain barrier, and I didn't even – I'm, I'm interested that we've never really discussed it. The blood-brain barrier is – it's basically a mechanism, but it's an actual structure that exists all throughout your brain. Um, it's a central nervous system structure of the blood vessels. So there are capillaries, as we know, as the, as the blood vessels get closer and closer, there are these tiny capillaries that once the blood cells get close enough to the brain and the spinal cord tissue, the capillaries become so incredibly small that most molecules actually can't pass through them. And so this is a really good kind of immune mechanism for the brain because the brain has really crap immune cells and it helps protect the brain and spinal cord from a lot of infectious agents that we can easily catch in other parts of our body, but would be devastating in the brain. And so although this is a really great evolutionary and developmental achievement of the human body and of other mammalian bodies as well, it's actually quite detrimental to 
clinical science when trying to come up with new ways to give drugs to individuals that need them, specifically those that are targeted in the brain, like Parkinson's patients. Have you guys all seen or read um, Oliver Sacks's Awakenings? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So good, right? Yep. And so I'm assuming that a lot of listeners have too, but that actually deals with the blood-brain barrier quite a bit because he's looking at the usage of L-DOPA, which was just a huge influence when it was first discovered because it was able to be it was a precursor to dopamine that could actually pass the blood the blood brain barrier prior to that uh research not researchers but clinicians were really interested in delivering dopamine to patients who needed it but it doesn't pass the blood brain barrier so it was a huge problem for parkinson's patients um can i add can i give a little, yeah. little bit more information to that so of course. some drugs or some proteins or things that that cross the blood-brain barrier are actually transported across by dedicated carriers. They have to bind to a carrier, which then cr- you know transported across the blood-brain barrier and deposits it. And L-DOPA is one of those things that requires a carrier. And it competes for those carriers with amino acids, which are proteins, right? So if you have a big hamburger and then you take your Parkinson's medications, it actually doesn't – not as much of it gets into the brain because you're, you're competing with those transport proteins. For, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, for the wow. drug. So that, that's a good the, – the, the blood-brain barrier is very active. It's not a passive barrier. It's a very mm-hmm. active barrier that actually – controls what gets across and what doesn't get across. And so it it looks as though roughly 95% of the medicine um, in existence right now does not actually cross the blood brain barrier. Some of it does, but the vast majority of it doesn't. And so because of that, uh, doctors struggle and pharmacologists struggle and clinical researchers struggle to figure out how to treat neurodegenerative diseases and other diseases that require drug delivery to the brain, like we said, um, Parkinson's. Sometimes this involves injecting drugs directly into the brain, which is obviously very invasive. And sometimes it involves some other new kinds of treatments that have been developed, like using ultrasound to help get across the blood-brain barrier or using nanoparticles to like we were um, talking about before, like carbon nanotubes to help travel those things across because they are so small they can get through. Yeah, but, but mostly we just use drugs that cross the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. it's cheaper and yeah. way easier. But there is a new approach that's been researched for quite some time using viral vectors, um, which makes a lot of sense. And there's a lab at Caltech, very close to where I live, the lab of neuroscientist Viviana Gradinaru. And she has been looking at these viral vectors for quite some time. And her lab actually developed a whole new technique. And that's what the paper that I was just reading is all about. Now, it's incredibly dense and incredibly complicated. I'm going to knock out two um, terms because I think that they're important to understand the process. Do it. Yeah. um, (laughs) So fun. Adeno-associated viruses, which are these very small viruses that infect humans. Um, They also infect some other organisms, mostly mammals. Um, But they don't – they're not really pathogenic. So they don't – they can infect humans, but they don't cause disease. And they've been utilized in laboratory studies as uh, a mechanism for gene therapy for a little bit of time. So what they did is they wanted to look at these adeno-associated viruses and try out a bunch of different ones and see which ones transduced. That's the other word that I'm going to introduce because this is super complicated to me as somebody who studied neuroscientists, but in, or neuroscience, but in genetics, transduction is the process by which like 
DNA, so usually from a virus uh, or a viral or v- DNA that's put into a virus or a viral vector uh, is transferred into a cell. In neuroscience, we often talked about transduction the same way physicists do, like taking one signal and converting it into a different type of signal, like photons being converted into electrical signals in the brain. That's transduction. But in, in genetics, transduction is inserting DNA into a cell using some sort of vector. So keep that in mind. What Gradinaru's lab did is they took all of these different adeno-associated viruses. And viruses, if you remember, have a protein shell called a capsid. And they changed the shape of all of these different capsids. And they injected them into mice. And they did this just in large number to test which ones passed the blood-brain barrier and also which ones were highly sort of infectious, which ones could actually get into nervous tissue really easily. And one way that they did that is they used GFP, green fluorescent protein. It's a really um, helpful laboratory tool. You put some GFP into the viral vector, you infect the mouse with the virus, and then after the mouse is sacrificed, you can look at its brain under the microscope. And if it glows bright green, you know that that viral vector crossed the blood-brain barrier and specifically was able to transduce or target um, certain types of neural tissue. After trying a bunch of different types, they found one that is just called AAV, PHP.B. So that's obviously just a catalog number. And they found it to be really, really infectious or really, really um, transductive, meaning that I think I see the number in here somewhere. Oh, yeah. 40 times more higher efficacy than anything that's currently used, which is huge. And it actually had widespread transduction. It was able to infect a lot of different kinds of central nervous system cells. And they actually called this technique that they developed on their own only because scientists are so good at acronyms. They called it CREATE, which stands for Cree Recombination-Based AAV or Adeno-Associated Virus, Targeted evolution. So spelled out, that means create. And they, yeah, so they used that in, in both in vivo and in vitro to be able to develop these, uh, these tools. And then they were able to find this specific viral vector once again called AAVPHP.B. And it was 40% better at both crossing the blood-brain barrier and um, targeting these specific types of cells. So this, what does this mean? I mean, mostly their paper is like a heavy methods paper about how they did it and about uh, what some of the cell types that they were able to transduce were. But in the grand scheme of things, what this means is that this lab is, you know, well on their way to developing a technique that is still used in animals, of course, but that could really improve um, the ability both to cross the blood-brain barrier and to specifically target different kinds of cells because of this technique, because of this way that they can change the shapes of these capsids and then put these basically new medications or these new viral vectors into the organism and improve specificity. Um, There are obviously some problems with this technique because they don't really know yet what downstream infection rates are like. So they know that they can reach their primary targets, 
But who knows if these things keep on moving and they're hitting secondary and tertiary targets outside of the brain or, or uh, farther in the body because they are moving through the vasculature. And so there are some other um, issues that need to be focused on. But it, I think it is a really promising new technique and it could help you know, clinicians even in uh, human medicine in the future. Yeah, I mean, if it, if it, again, if it pans out, you know, yeah, the idea exactly. is great. But of course, my immediate concern is while, while they're using non-pathogenic viruses, they may become pathogenic if they get access to the brain, if they're getting access to the central nervous system. When we first started using viral vectors for gene therapy, that was the big mm-hmm. limiting factor that the viruses were causing encephalitis and killing the subjects. You know, that's it's a non-trivial problem. So, yeah, and when you have a history of that, you're much more um, wary of it in the future, which could actually, you know, it's important to be wary of it in the future, obviously, because you want to protect the patients, but it can actually slow the research as well. So that would be the big concern that that comes up is, you know, make sure this is a, that this is going to be safe, basically. But if this could be a way of shuttling drugs into the brain, yeah, it could vastly increase the number of drugs that we can use to treat uh the central nervous system. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Plated.com. So, guys, I actually cooked a meal from Plated. Cool. Uh, I've done a couple, actually, but the, the most recent one I did was chicken and kale. Uh, I was a little skeptical about the kale, but they the recipe called for a little bit of sugar in the recipe in, in with the kale, and it completely took away the bitterness. It was freaking delicious. Yeah, I mean, I cooked that with you, Steve. I was at my house cooking it, and Steve was at his house cooking it. Yeah, and it was, it was super easy. You get all the ingredients down to the you know the sugar and the little pat of butter. You get you know they sent you the chicken, all the vegetables. It they, it came with these little squash, so like really unique ingredients that you wouldn't necessarily ordinary ordinarily find at your supermarket and the whole thing you know took like a half an hour to make uh very very simple so the the deal with the plated offer is that you pay just twelve dollars a a plate a meal you get the ingredients you get the recipe and then of course you have the recipe which you can use whenever and if you get more than four meals in a week you get free shipping with that Uh, it's just a really convenient way to uh to cook a home-cooked, chef-designed meal. It's awesome. Yeah, I liked it because, well, first of all, the idea that they're only sending you the ex- the exact amount of ingredients that you want, so you're not throwing a lot of stuff away. It's just this is what you're using to make that exact meal. And uh, and guys, you know how summer is. Everyone's just so busy. There's so much to do. You're having so much fun. So you can take advantage of Plated and actually save some time, even even a little money. It'll be cheaper than just going out sometimes. And uh, I think it's a, a perfect time to try it. So if you want to give Plated a try, go to Plated.com slash skeptics, and you'll get a free dinner for two with your first purchase and free shipping on your order. Just go to Plated.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, so we are recording this show a few days, five days following the Orlando shooting. I'm sure everyone has heard about that by now. It's a very uh, tragic episode. 49 people were killed. I keep hearing dozen score of people were injured. The story is still evolving in terms of it, what the motivation was of the shooter. I've heard reports that uh, this so the, the shooting took place at a, at a predominantly Latino nightclub that caters to the LGBTQ community. Obviously, extremely tragic. And Often after these episodes, there is a little spasm of concern about things like gun control. 
Uh, although it's, so far nothing really has come of that, but Newtown shooting came and went, et cetera, and you know d- didn't result in any uh, modification of gun regulation in this country. Uh, so, but the reason why I'm talking about it this week is because uh, something did happen, which I don't know if it will make any difference ultimately, but it is interesting and it, and it deals with a very interesting issue. So, the American Medical Association, the AMA, has reversed its previous position and has decided to treat gun violence as a public health issue. And they've called upon Congress to uh, end its de facto ban on research into gun violence. So here's the background to this story. Well, first off, how ridiculous is that, that the CDC is prevented from doing research on gun violence? What kind of world do we live in where that can actually happen? Yeah, well, Well, I'll I'll explain to you. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. So obviously the, the, the CDC is the Center for Disease Control and, and they do a lot primarily epidemiological research. And it's not just infectious disease, but, you know, in, in all sorts of diseases. In the past, uh, they have done research involving gun violence, either in like for teenagers, for kids, as used in, uh, suicide, you know, in very in different, in, in various contexts. However, in 1996, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, accused the CDC of essentially promoting gun control, not just not just of object- objectively researching gun violence, but of promoting gun control. They put pressure on Congress, and Congress essentially threatened to strip the CDC of its funding. In fact, a Republican congressman successfully led an effort to strip $2.6 million of funding from the CDC, which is the exact amount they spent on research into gun violence the previous year. Uh, that money was then returned to the CDC or, you know, added back to the budget in the CDC the following year. Oh, God. Because the best way to get a political point across is to take money away from public health. Absolutely. <laughs> so the CDC responded in, in uh, self-preservation mode. They said, okay, so uh, if we're going to lose all of our funding, if we research gun violence, we're not going to research gun violence. So they, from 1996, they effectively ended and sel- they had a self-imposed ban on all research into gun violence, although saying it's self-imposed, you know, isn't really <laughs> accurate because it, it is it is imposed by Congress's de facto threat to defund them if they do research gun violence. Was there a case? I mean, did they did the NRA even have to say this is why we think you're supporting gun control? There, did that even yeah. matter? No, I don't think so. And they were just saying that. Uh, that these re- these studies are biased and it actually amounts to promotion of gun control, you know, rather than just objectively researching it. I guess because they didn't like the outcome of the research, you know, is what it comes down to. So they they bullied the CDC out of doing the research by threatening their funding, and it worked. And so there hasn't been any funding of gun violence research through the CDC since 1996, so basically 20 years. I just listened to a a speech by Obama, and he was saying how – he was talking about gun control, and I thought he gave a really good answer. But he he gave an interesting anecdote. He said that when he was a kid, lots of people died in car accidents, as as they do today. But uh, more people died back then, I guess – per capita or whatever, however you want to look at it. So he said that, so I'm not sure who, I wonder maybe if it was a CDC or, or they researched 
how they could make roads safer, how they make, could make cars safer, what they could do, how could they could actually change roads to, to minimize the numbers of accidents. So they studied a problem, they found a problem, they studied it, they, they instituted changes, and now far fewer people die yeah. than they used to die many, many decades ago. I mean, doesn't that seem like a reasonable response? It's hard to argue against research, you know, providing information. So, you know, science and research and, and facts should inform political decision making. Whatever your, your, you know, political ideology with regard to the issue of gun control, there's, you know, no harm done in just having the facts. But if you're afraid to even have the facts, that says something, in my opinion, about your position. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, you know, the, the CDC is so paranoid now. Um, one of the the delegates from the AMA who was on the committee that was recently addressing this issue recounted that when he um, you know brought up this notion of the CDC doing research into gun violence, the the director of the CDC, Tom Friedman, said, "This is now a quote." He said, "Stop! We can't have a conversation about this, and don't put it on, on in a letter. Stop!" Like just totally oh, panicking. Geez. Like we oh can't talk about this. We'll lose our funding. Wow. So yeah, just as an anecdote, which just shows how effective the threat was. You know, what, what if what if they just call their bluff? I mean, would would they, you think they would have decimated their funding? I mean, Bob, yes. think about the NRA it. NRA is them? so powerful. Look at what happened. The NRA has so many, so many partners in Congress. It, you know, part of me, and I'm not not sure how I feel about this part of me, but part of me in this situation is like, yeah, go right ahead. I'm calling your bluff, and then sure, decimate their funding, and then you see what the what the uh, the after effects of that would be, and they'd be like, no, okay, well, that was really horrible. stupid. So President Obama has tried to address this issue actually in uh, 2012 following the Newtown shooting. He – by executive order, he essentially reversed the CDC ban. Uh, but the CDC is still not doing uh, any research because they're just they, – they think that, you know, yeah, sure. That Obama is uh, – says it's OK, but Congress controls the purse strings, right? They're the ones who can, can strip away the funding, so they're not buying it. So the AMA – is is their resolution essentially calls upon Congress to allow the CDC to do research into gun violence. That's that was this the essence of their resolution. They're basically saying gun violence is a public health issue and the CDC should research it as a public health issue and Congress should not interfere with that simply because they f- might find the results of that research inconvenient to their ideology. And of course, I completely agree with that. What's interesting is I wrote about this on uh, science-based medicine today. And as uh, just just today, and as of right now, there's 495 comments on this article, which is, yeah, that's a lot for us. That's even, we were, it's a very active blog, but like if we break a hundred, that's a good, that's a good post. And it, this exploded. Of course, I also posted to our Facebook page and read, if you want to cry, Read the read the comments under the article what, what on the happened? Facebook page. Well, it's just every bad you know argument, every logical fallacy you could imagine. I mean, the the it's an example of completely uncritical thinking in every form is happening. There are false analogies. I mean, it's really just incredible. This is such an emotional issue in America. It really is. It's very divisive. It's very emotional. People lose their freaking minds when you talk about anything to do with gun control. Plus, there's a lot of regurgitated standard talking points. You could definitely see that, you know, but they don't really hold up to even the tiniest bit of scrutiny. And again, it's so a lot of it on the, on the anti-gun control side, a lot of it is just paranoia about they're going to take away our guns. 
it's like, well, that's not actually what anybody's well, I know there are some people talking about that, but I mean, that's not like the only response to this is taking away your guns. I mean, we're, most people are just talking about, can we at least have, do some research and see if we could figure out some ways to mitigate some of the, the negative consequences of having so many guns in our society? I mean, America has like by far and away more gun deaths than any other uh, country, and nobody really knows why. You know, there's yeah. there's a lot of theories and a hypothesis about why that is, but it's really an interesting question about why is it that America's gun problem is just so much greater than any other country's. It'd be really nice to be able to, like, I don't know, research. Yeah, that. exactly. I mean, just, <laughs> let them do what are you saying, Kara? God, <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's that's obviously the point I'm building to. It's like we need we need data, we need information, then we can have a healthy conversation about how to balance the personal liberty and 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 I get that, and I'm not offering any simplistic solutions to this, but at the very least, we should be able to research it objectively. And, and, you know, not have, you know, politicians trying to stifle research, uh, because that's not going to help anybody. Uh, so I, I applaud the AMA for taking action, although, you know, it's a little late. You know, I'm not sure why it took so long, but it was, and it was absolutely triggered by, uh, the events in Orlando, Florida. In fact, the proposal came out of AMA's LGBT committee. Definitely, you know, explicitly a reaction to the, to the, uh, recent events in Orlando. So. But we'll see, you know, again, we'll see if anything comes of it. You know, the history is any guide. The only really predictable thing that happens after massive gun violence in the U.S. is that people buy more guns. Yeah. Well, well wait, Steve, people also have <laughs> the debate starts anew. You know, the, the gun debate starts yeah. all over again. You hear the same old stuff on both sides. And, um, and then people do go buy more guns and ammo. So one of the very sad things I've noticed over the years is that uh, – when it, from an outsider's point of view, sitting here in Australia, it comes on the news and we hear about another mass shooting in the United States and it's, we're sadly getting a bit numb to it, you know, instead of the, the utter horror and shock that it is and it should be, it's more of a case of, Here's the next mass shooting in the states. What's going to happen? Nothing. We'll wait for the next one. It's it's just a very sad oh, we feel situation. the same way. I mean, yeah, that happens here too. But didn't didn't they ban guns in Australia? Ninety six, right? Not exactly. What they did that we had a, really? a, a mass shooting in uh, twenty years ago, and that which prompted the government to initiate a huge buyback of unnecessary military firearms or any firearms that citizens just wanted to. to to get rid of, no questions asked, give us the firearms, we'll, we'll pay you a fair price. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of guns were, were handed, and you can see pictures of mountains of rifles and guns and all sorts of things. And there's a very telling video doing the rounds on Facebook at the moment where they interview a group of college students in the United States, and they ask them about how concerned they are about gun violence and shootings, and, you know, they're all pretty worried, and, they, you know, it's in their mind. And then they interview a bunch of uh, college students here in Australia, and they're all looking, what? Uh, no, no, never, don't really think about it. Sorry, what What are you talking about? It's it's very telling. All right, uh, let's move on. I predict that's going to be our number one email topic of the week. Uh, <laughs> oh, for sure. Let's move yeah. on. Uh, Richard, actually, you're going to give us some other news from Australia, and and this is some good news. 
It is, it is, hopefully. Now, um, the United States is not the only country having a uh, federal election coming up. In fact, in Australia, in about two, two, three weeks, we have a, a federal election coming up, and we'll see who's going to win that. But the opposition party here in Australia called the Labor Party, the current incumbent party is called the Liberal Party, but they're not a Liberal Party, they're a Conservative Party. It's just one of those funny quirks of names and things like that. But the opposition party who, as all parties do at this time, are making promises. They all make promises. Whether these promises will be uh, borne out is yet to be seen. They've had an interesting move on their part. They're going. They're saying that if they win government, one of their policies is to cut taxpayer funding for natural therapies through the government rebate system. Now, this is pretty big. This is pretty big, and I'm sort of surprised they've done that because a lot of their constituents um, would certainly be into alternative medicine, as a lot of people are, but. Owing partly to a review uh, the government did some years ago into alternative medicine practices, discovering that none of them were effective, has really triggered this party to come up with this policy. And what they're going to do is cut funding to things like iridology and aromatherapy and things like that, and hopefully that will expand. And they're saying that uh, this may end up with a budget saving of $180 million dollars uh, in the short term and uh, more like $700 million in the long term. But it, what a powerful message it does send um, that a party is willing to say this. You know, the government have been subsidizing through private rebates and all sorts of things. These therapies, these therapies have shown in studies that they're not effective uh, and they're wanting to put the money, obviously, towards things that are effective. Maybe, I don't know, like um, uh, operating theaters and, and, and uh, science-based medicine. Well, of course, you can imagine that the uh, people involved on the other side, the alt-med crowd, are not happy about this at all, and they've released a press statement. In fact, it's from the uh, Australian uh, Complementary Medicines have released a press statement saying that this is a, a false economy. And their argument is that preventative medicine, $1 spent on preventative medicine in the long term will save $10 further down the track because people are more healthy because they've prevented the disease in the first place, etc. Working on the assumption that these quack therapies actually work and they're the reason that people are getting better because they're seeing these acupuncturists and aromatherapists and iridologists and whatever and, and that's actually working. Well, our good friend Ken Harvey, who's involved in a wonderful organization called Friends of Science in Medicine, who I'm sure you're familiar with, Steve, here in Australia, has replied uh, on a, an online uh, blog here from, um, I think the Australian Pharmacies uh, Journal have got a blog, uh, putting this case that it's not it's not the fact that these uh, people are getting benefits from these quack therapies. It's more likely that the people who are going to these quack therapies are probably more uh, healthy to begin with anyway and more affluent. And it's not the fact that these aromatherapy are actually changing anything. But I think this is going to be an interesting test case. And I don't know who's going to win, which party will, will win the next election. But if the Labour Party do win the ne next election, which is possible, I guess, the thing is, will they keep this promise? And what backlash, what further backlash will they get from the, the uh, alternative medicine crowd, who I imagine are quite powerful, as they are all around the world? And I wonder if the current government, the Liberal Party, retain office, whether they'll take this policy on board, because it does represent a huge saving. If, if the government doesn't have to fork out 
precious taxpayer dollars to fund things which ultimately has been shown don't work, then it can only be uh, a benefit, I would imagine. And this does, and I know you're going to be covering this soon, this does uh, relate to what's happening in the, the UK with homeopathy. You know, funding for that is being cut, and, and you'll be covering that next week with Michael Marshall. It's a, it's a very spoilers. positive... Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> it, it's a very positive um, trend. It, it really is. And this yeah. came out of the blue. We, we weren't expecting that. And Australian skeptics have been keeping an eye on the policies of the various parties coming up to the next election. In fact, a couple of weeks ago on the Skeptic Zone, I interviewed one of the, the spokespeople from the Australian Sex Party. Of all things, but they have yeah. very skeptical. Yeah, the Australian Sex Party. Look it up. They have a great time. <clears throat> they, um, <laughs> but their policies are very, as far as we can see, very aligned with uh, science and reason. And they put out a very strong statement against the anti-vax crowd here in this country. So it's it's worth keeping an eye on. And uh, look, we can only wait and see whether this uh, this bears out after the election. But. Uh, I don't want to tell anybody who to vote for. That's not what I do. But if the Labor Party win, I hope that's one promise they can keep. We're saving money here in the U.S. too, Richard. Uh, mm-hmm. We're cutting funding for research into gun violence. Well, there you go. You see, it's <laughs> that's how we do it, man. Yeah, it, it's just a win-win situation. But I would encourage all your listeners to please Google Friends of Science in Medicine. They are a wonderful bunch doing a very. Uh, Good work here in Australia. Great work, yeah. 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 What's interesting is that sometimes the uh, alternative medicine crowd, they do like cost-effectiveness research. They do anything other than efficacy research because that shows that their treatments don't work. So they go, okay, forget about the whole does it work or not. Let's just see if it's cost-effective. But of course, a treatment that doesn't work is by definition not cost-effective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all they say is, oh, look, it costs less than – this other treatment, yeah, but that other treatment works, yeah. and your your nonsense doesn't. So it's yeah. by, it's by definition not cost effective. So I mean, and that's I agree. That's a great argument against any kind of funding for uh, alternative medicine is that it doesn't work. Therefore, it's not cost effective. And insurance companies in the U.S. do know that, and that's why they don't want to pay for it. But they're being forced to pay for it by gullible state legislatures that are being lobbied by alternative medicine proponents. So even then we lose because, you know, mm. you know, the one, the one good thing about insurance companies is that they try to be cost effective and that's being taken away from them, you know, by politicians. It's just maddening. Very quickly, guys, uh, Kara, actually you sent this out. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but was it just last year, right? It was last year, not this year, where the first ever gravity waves were discovered or was that earlier this year? I think that was earlier this yeah, year. Yeah, that was not too long Febu- ago. Yeah. February. Yeah. February. February. Yeah. Already, uh, LIGO has discovered the second verified case of gravity waves. So cool. Yeah. It's again two black holes crashing into each other. You know, they orbit each other very, very quickly, and then they eventually merge into one bigger black hole. And while they're orbiting around each other, the last moments you know, before they merge, they, they create these ripples in space-time. You know, they basically ripples in, in, in gravity, and they, it creates the – what was until recently theoretical gravity waves, 
that that come out of Einstein's theory of general, general relativity. And now this is the second second one's already recorded. Very, very, very cool. So I uh, didn't want to go too much into that, just to mention that that has happened. You know, yes. Very interesting. Yeah. I don't know if, if there's anything you want to add about that, Bob. It was- I do. There is. There's also another uh, wrinkle to this, so to speak, that uh-huh. uh, is is fascinating. I'm, I'm, I might talk about it next week or uh, and or write a blog post about this. But uh, they, there's a theory out there that, that these black holes could be be dark matter. Oh yeah, yeah could yeah. be dark matter, which whoa, is fascinating whoa. because th- think about it. They could be these could be primordial black holes. The, the, at thirty at thirty solar masses, there, it was too massive to be a stellar remnant, but not massive enough to be a, uh, a you know a supermassive black hole. It's kind of <laughs> in the middle ground, sort of. And they think that if it's a primordial black hole, it would be uh, it would have been created at the beginning of the universe with with huge tracts of gas. Uh, collapsing, so it's not from a stellar uh, object, but just huge amounts of gas collapsing, and these might be littered everywhere, evenly distributed, like in the halos of galaxies and stuff. So uh, that's, so that's odd, another though, part- Bob, because why wouldn't it, why wouldn't they have evaporated by now? Too big, because too big. I mean, when you get thirty stellar masses, you, you would need m- many more than just mere thirteen billion years to to evaporate. It could take much much longer than that. But um, but yeah, I can go, maybe go on better detail next uh, next week or look for my blog post on it. I think it's fascinating. Of course, it's just a it's just an idea. You know, it's something to, re- to that they're going to look into, and it's not something that that uh, has a lot of evidence yet, but they got to start looking. And this this latest discovery is kind of, I'm not sure how this latest discovery fits in though, because we're talking uh, instead of, you know, 230 solar mass black holes, the second gravitational wave uh, event was, I think, a 14 solar mass black hole and an eight. So does that, could they be considered just stellar remnants or could they also be considered a low end primordial black hole? I'm not sure yet. <laughs> So wow, yeah, this is uh, this is super cool. Is the bottom line, and uh, it's t- too early to say all of the, the the science that will come out of this. But clearly, we're, we're we've opened up a new chapter, you know, with discovery Gra- of gravity, gravitational yeah. wave astronomy. It's a whole new yeah. field. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Great. Okay, Jay, get us up to date on who's that noisy. Last week, I played this sound. What is it, guys? What is that? <laughs> so horrifying. Sounds like a piglet. Yeah, it's like a it's a lamb being sacrificed. Ooh. It's a bullfrog. A bullfrog. A bullfrog. Whoa! Yep, this was sent in uh, by a listener named Bruce. He said, "I took the attached video a few weeks ago in my neighborhood. The bullfrog in the picture was sitting in the middle of the street. I thought it would be safer in the yard, so I chased it. <laughs> it made a screaming sound and surprised me. What do you think?" So. I- I like to think that Bruce then whipped out his phone and made this recording for me. He thought of me while chasing a bullfrog. I have to believe that. I love it. Thank you, Bruce. That was great. And somebody guessed it. James Coltas said, it's a cornered frog. Good enough. Wow. Good enough. That's crazy. That is crazy. Good job, James. So for this week, guys, I wish that I knew early enough that you were going to be here Richard I would have I would have picked something that harkens back to to your motherland but I oh, did yeah. not have the the information but I do have one I think that you'll you'll appreciate take okay. a listen to this Yep, that was sent in by a listener named Andrew Brown. Thank you, Andrew. 
Guys, I know what it is. What is that? That sounds like my washing machine. Somebody on speed <laughs> trying to fly a drone remotely. <laughs> <laughs> the way it accelerated yeah. like that. Wow. I know, right? That's um again, I, I tried to listen to it without figuring you know, knowing what it was first and uh I couldn't figure it out. Mm. So if you have a good noisy like that one, which was sent in by a listener, or if you want to make a guess, you can email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. All right. Thank you, Jay. A very quick dumbest thing of the week. You guys can figure out which person in this drama is the, is the dumber one. But uh, this one comes – this story comes from Canada. A 56-year-old man in eastern Ontario is wanted by the police – Last I heard, he was not yet captured by the police. So apparently this 56-year-old gentleman and his son and his son's girlfriend were camping. And the father and the and the son's girlfriend got into an argument about the shape of the earth. Apparently the gentleman maintained that the earth is round. It's a spheroid of some sort. And the girl was uh, holding fast to her view that the earth is flat. This uh, discussion got the uh, the father so uh, frustrated that he started throwing stuff into their campfire, including a propane tank. Oh, oh God. what the hell? Whoops. The authorities were called and they had to extinguish the fire. The man fled on foot, apparently, and as of this recording, had not yet been acquired. That's not a healthy response, by the way. We do not recommend no. uh, as a skeptic that you respond to – a flat earther or equivalent by throwing explosives into campfires. <laughs> uh, but wait, but we do want you to know we understand your pain. Yes, <laughs> we do. We feel your pain. Uh, it's interesting because recently, well, without getting into any details, you know, Bob, Jay, and I have been involved in discussions with an individual who might as well be a flat earther. I mean, there's, you know, there's just, there are some people who can't like formulate a logical connection between two things. You know what I mean? And it's just an exercise in frustration to have a conversation with them about anything. Uh, so I totally get it. But if you feel you're at the point where you're going to start, you know, throwing hydrocarbons into fire, then just back off, man. Just, you know, relax. Just, uh, Stop the discussion. Obviously, you're not making any progress if you're if you're getting that frustrated. <laughs> My God. I just can only imagine the scene with the guy like increasingly becoming more and more irate, and then he snaps and yeah. he like thinks like then he loses it and starts throwing explosives into fires. Right. <laughs> it sounds like he would have done that regardless. It wasn't the flat earth that was ticking yeah. him off. If somebody could do that over that argument, maybe he's it yeah. About I mean, his character. Guy, he may have an anger management. Maybe. Issue, but flat earthers, man, that's got to be frustrating. <laughs> All right. Uh, Kara. Yes. What's the word? The word this week was actually a word that I learned on my other podcast on Talk Nerdy. I had a guest on who I met when I was at Reason Rally last week. We had actually been communicating via email for some time leading up to that. His name is Phil Torres. The other Phil Torres, those of you who follow me, I have a good friend named Phil Torres as well. Um, he's a philosopher and he wrote a book called The End, What Science and Religion Tells Us About the Apocalypse. And as we started talking, he kept using this word over and over, eschatology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And eventually I had to stop him and say, what the hell does eschatology mean? eschatological. Yes. <laughs> it's end times, right? End times, exactly. So eschatology, according to Oxford Dictionaries, is the part of theology concerned with death, 
judgment and the final destiny of the soul and of mankind. And so it's really interesting because in his book, he actually makes an argument for what he calls um, existential risk. And he talks about how historically there are many religions that have eschatologies um, kind of worked into their dogma and that now more than ever are we living in a time when these eschatological sort of callings could mm. actually be carried out because of the technologies that we have available to us. Mm. And he's also really interested in looking at what he calls secular eschatology, which is this idea that through future technologies used somewhat nefariously like AI, yeah. nanotechnology, gene therapy, we could actually potentially destroy the human race. So it's a, it was a really fascinating fascinating conversation. I was so happy to learn this new term because now I feel like I'm going to use it all the time. Um, and I wanted to <laughs> make sure that everybody knew where it came from. So it was first used in 1834. And it actually comes from the Greek eschatos, which means last, furthest, uttermost, extreme, or most remote in time, space, or degree. And so, of course, that was then related as an ology um, to religion and the study of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Yeah, I always said that word eschatological. Yeah. But it always makes me think of feces for some me reason. Me too. Yes. <laughs> Sounds like scat. <laughs> and yeah, I, also, I also feel like that's so you guys' Connecticut accent, too, because he would say eschatological like yeah, that on yeah. the podcast, which sounds a lot less like poo. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Squarespace.com. Kara and Jay, I know you've both used this for your own websites. It's true. I not only have used it, I continue to use Squarespace. I love it. Um, super easy to design your website from scratch because everything is drag and drop. You don't have to know how to code. You don't have to know HTML. And what I love the most is that I don't have to pay anybody to keep my website up. So every day, every week when I have new content, I can just upload it myself. And gosh, it's just really straightforward. Yeah. And Kara, you know this, they're, they're templates that you get to pick from are gorgeous. And the templates will actually change to fit any device that anybody's looking at your website on. So, you know, from your iPhone all the way up to a PC, the website will change so people can see it and it'll look great. So this starts at $8 a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code SGU to get 10% off your first purchase. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real, one fake. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Richard, yeah, you haven't ready. played with us in a while. No, but I've got a pretty good track record. I think I've won Did more than well? I've lost. I think so, yeah. All righty. All righty. We'll see how you do this week. Here they are. Three regular news items. Item number one, researchers have found a new type of meteorite never seen before that may be evidence of a massive asteroid belt collision 470 million years ago. Item number two, scientists have created synthetic blood in which the iron in hemoglobin is replaced with iridium, resulting in a tenfold increase in oxygen delivery per volume. 
And item number three, a systematic review of research finds that drinking beverages hotter than 149 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 65 degrees Celsius, is probably carcinogenic linked to cancer of the esophagus. All right, Richard, as our guest, why don't you go first? Hmm, what an interesting selection you've cooked up for us this week, uh, Steve. Researchers have found a new type of meteorite, and we've got the the blood and the drinking. You know what? I'm going to be pretty quick about this one. And without giving them overly thinking, without overly thinking these, I think I'm going to probably favor one as real. I'm going to favor tenfold. Who drinks (laughs) stuff that hot? Now I'm, now I'm Richard, thinking about it. Damn it. All right, Richard, look. don't, don't knock overthinking. It's awesome. <laughs> Bob Riley endorses overthinking. I think, it. I think, <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time I get to overthink is when I'm listening to SGU. I think I'm going to peg, uh, the fake as being two because a tenfold increase in oxygen delivery does seem to me to be excessive. I wouldn't drink stuff that hot. At 65 degrees or 149. And see, number one could be true or not. Look, for the sake of it, I think I'll say the fake is number two. The synthetic blood. The synthetic blood. Okay, Kara? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is one of a handful of science or fictions where they all seem really real. to Like they all stand out as being totally legitimate science topics. So this is tough. I don't have any background in any of these areas. Uh, The new meteorite was never seen. It was evidence of a massive, could be evidence of a uh, asteroid belt collision 470 million years ago. Synthetic blood replaced the iron in the hemoglobin with iridium. I don't know if iridium can carry oxygen, but um, seems like you could do that in synthetic blood. And drinking hot beverages. I feel like I I may have read something about some new cancer uh, study with hot things or with beverages, but I have no idea. I could just be convincing myself that I read something like that. I'm going to go ahead and say that the meteorite is the fiction, and I have absolutely Mm. no reason behind (laughs) my decision. Okay. Thank (laughs) you for your honesty, Bob. (laughs) Yeah, the the liquid one, yeah, I've heard things in the past about drinking... um, Really hot beverages is bad, and since I like like I like my coffee hot, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna measure. I I have no idea what the temperature is. I just know it's hot, and most people are like, "What the hell? That is so hot!" <laughs> I'm gonna actually measure that because damn, if if it's if it's as hot as that, I may need to actually. I'll I think I might cry because I can't stand even just merely very warm uh, coffee. It's got to be hot. Okay, so I'm gonna say that one is true. Um, synthetic blood. That's just too awesome. I, I, again, I don't know about, I mean, I know what iridium is, but I have no idea that if it would be a good replacement for hemoglobin. But a tenfold increase in oxygen delivery per bond, that is fantastic. The one that rankles me, though, is the meteorite one. Kara, maybe you'll be happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> first off, a, a new, a completely new type of meteorite. Wow. I mean, they've found so many meteorites over the years. To find something that's completely brand new seems a little bit odd and shocking. Um, and I'm not sure, I don't know what the connection possibly is between that, a new meteorite and evidence of a massive asteroid belt collision. How could you possibly link one stupid little meteorite with, with, uh, you know, to a, a massive asteroid belt collision? 
and you know 470 million years ago i mean sure you could you could date it based on the the meteorite itself when it you know when it was heated and then cooled and stuff but how do you know it's a massive collision uh, all right so i'll agree with kara and say that is fiction and jay okay um so the new meteorite when when you first read it i'm like what does it have like something uh, you know some some compounds on it that we've never seen before or whatever but then when i thought a little more about it i'm like i think what they're talking about is uh they've detected a new meteorite meaning that they've never seen one that that is made up of the things that's on it even though we know what those things are you know what i'm saying bob yeah yeah, so whatever. It's just new meaning. We don't know where it came from. Like it's not the kinds of, of meteorites that typically hit the earth. So they're like, oh, this might have come from a different part of the outer rim or whatever. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, okay, 47 million years ago, collision with the asteroid belt. You know, these are all things I can't even – I couldn't even think, you know, yes or no on. But that seems cromulent to me. Um, <laughs> the second one here about the synthetic blood. Now they were making synthetic blood a long time ago. I remember seeing it on TV. It's funny when I read the word hemoglobin, hemoglobin, I think of hobgoblin for some of course, reason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but replacing the iron with iridium, um, and then giving it a tenfold increase in oxygen delivery. That's all to me. That's like superhero level stuff there. That's like blood doping. Mm. Um, if that were true. Uh, but can you even could you could the human body deal with the iridium and not reject it uh, or whatever? That's odd, very strange. This last one here, the review about the drinking super hot beverages. It's funny because coffee, um, when you brew coffee at home, if you're not, I'm not talking about the Keurig, and if you have one, throw it the Christ away because <laughs> that's swill water. It's not Wrong. coffee. But if you're if you're brewing real coffee at home, the right temperature is. 200 degrees so if you think you know by the time the water filters through the coffee grains grinds and then goes into the um goes into the the pot whatever it is and by the time you pour it into your cup and put some cream in there you, yeah it's definitely not you're not drinking something at 200 degrees of course i mean but you could be drinking something at it's 150 close. degrees you sure. know sure I just don't know. I mean, now I'm interested. I don't mind if my my coffee doesn't have to be crazy hot like Bob's. Bob, I think I just figured this whole thing out. What? Don't Please drink super hot blood. <laughs> <laughs> Items two and three are connected somehow, and that's the trick here. <laughs> All right, but the thing about number four, it it, it does seem like sure. Number if you're exp- four, I'm sorry. The third item. <laughs> Did I miss one? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Richard was talking about how many items are going to be. <laughs> Bottom line is, it does kind of make sense to me that if you drink something super hot every day, your esophagus can be like, could you stop? And you know what? Here's some cancer because you're a jackass. <laughs> so I could see that. Um, the one about the blood seems way too awesome. Like, no, we're not replacing the iron in the hemoglobin with iridium, which sounds like it's radiation, even though I know it isn't, but it sounds like it's irradiated. Anyway, I say number two is the fiction. Okay, so uh, Jay and Richard think that the super hemoglobin is a fiction. Bob and Kara think that the meteorite is a fiction. So you all agree on the third one. So we'll start there. A systematic review of research finds that drinking beverages hotter than 149 degrees Fahrenheit, 65 degrees Celsius, is probably carcinogenic linked to cancer of the esophagus. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Yeah. Yay. Right. 
All right, so you're all safe so far. <laughs> I'm always I'm always safe after the first one. Every week, I'm always safe. And, but, yeah, it's like the uh, the car and the, the goat spot. Yes, Monty <laughs> Hall, baby. Oh, all right, wow. coffee waiting to be served usually sits around at one hundred and one hundred two. 185 degrees Fahrenheit, 82 to 85 degrees Celsius. That used to be the temperature that McDonald's restaurants served their coffee hmm. before, the, lawsuit. before <laughs> the famous lawsuit where the person spilled the coffee on those themselves and it burned. And it was hot. It was, it was hot. very hot. Now they, they serve it 10 degrees cooler than that. Yep. The average coffee drinking temperature in the United States is 140 degrees or 60 mm. degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. 140. And so, so they're saying that just nine degrees more than that is, can cause, is linked to cancer. Well, yeah, you know, you draw so then, a cut off somewhere, but. Wouldn't there be, I think there'd be a lot of cancer of the esophagus then. But again, increased risk doesn't mean it's rampant, just means there's increased risk. So this was, this came out of the World Health Organization, their international agency for research on cancer in Lyon, France. They did a systematic review of the literature. And they said, yeah, there actually is enough evidence there to call it a probable carcinogen, not a definite carcinogen. And, it, you know, it is linked to esophageal cancer, which makes sense. You know, as Jay said, the esophagus gets a little pissed off that you're constantly burning it. And I do have to point out that the IARC does say that a lot of things possibly or probably cause cancer. It's based mostly on epidemiological research. And I think overall they probably overcall it and they have a reputation for overcalling it. Like everything causes cancer. So I definitely would take this determination by the IARC with a huge grain of salt. But that was the result of the systematic review. What's funny is I really can't stand drinking things too hot. I'm very sensitive to it. I probably like things at maybe 120 degrees. Just I like things just barely, barely hot. Not real, not hot at all. Hmm. Weirdo. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> how hot? Uh, how hot do you take your showers? Really hot, hot. crazy uh, hot. It depends on if I if I've been exercising, I I, I actually like it cooler. Yeah, uh, but yeah. De- definitely, definitely not as hot as my wife, which is as hot as it comes out, which I can't stand. Yeah, like a hot tub feels good at like one hundred five. Yeah, one hundred five is good. So I don't know if you take showers even hotter because they're you know you're not submerged, but I like them basically as hot as it can be. Nah, you see, I'm like my wife likes the shower hotter than I do. Like I feel like I'm getting burned if I take a shower at the temperature she likes it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you could acclimate it to it. I mean, no, it hurts. It's painful. No, it just it does hurt. It turns you my skin acclimate. red. It just yeah, it definitely turns my skin red. Yeah, it turns uh, my skin red too. But I like it. And if I and drink just, something too hot or eat like pizza that's where the cheese is too hot, ooh, it actually ooh, like my yeah. – the skin, the, the, the tissue, not the skin, but the, the mucosal membrane on the inside of my mouth yeah. fluffs off. Yeah. yeah. I hate that. when that happens. That's annoying. That's annoying. I hate so fluffing re- skin. Guys, I'm reading here that Keurig is, is claiming that their water temperature that they brew at is at 192 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. But you, cha- um, you could change the temperature. Yeah, but it's, adjust- you, it's adjustable. I, I don't think that it gets that hot. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it gets that hot. Their their coffee no way do, does, doesn't seem to get that hot to me. When I brew that coffee from a Keurig, I then put it in the microwave for thirty three seconds. <laughs> thirty three uh, exactly. Bob's got yes. it down, Kara. Thirty three <laughs> seconds. I drink iced coffee mostly. So, R- Richard, do you no drink coffee? Cancer. 
Coffee, you bet. Yeah, I like it. I I I don't think I like would like it as hot as Bob. I'd be more with Steve in the temperature. But uh, every every morning, I sure like my coffee. You bet. So, have you guys heard of a drink that is popular in South America called yerba mate? Why? E-R-B-A-M-A-T-E. Yeah. I always thought it was pronounced yerba mate. I don't know. I have no idea. It's two words, yerba <laughs> and then M-A-T-E, but I'm just, I don't know if it's yerba mate. It probably is mate. Yeah. What is it, right. guys? It's, no, a, it's a hot drink, and it's 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 typically uh, consumed at like right below boiling. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, Bo- I wait. Just, I thought it was just is, a type of tea. Boiling is 212, so what are they drinking in that? Yeah, like 200. 212 Fahrenheit, 100 Celsius. Yeah. They're drinking at like you know, 190, 200. You know, or ninety five. You know, ninety six Celsius. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. crazy. Don't crazy. do that, guys. Don't do that. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. All right, let's move on. Let's go to number one. Researchers have found a new type of meteorite oh ever seen before that may be evidence of a massive asteroid belt collision four hundred and seventy million years ago. Jay and Richard think this one is science. Bob and Kara think this one is the fiction. Come Say on, it. Richard. This one Say it. Say is it. science. Oh! Rap, mother. Oh! Of course. <laughs> the two captains synthetic blood. win. Win. We know our yes. space. Published. Right. God, I've been sucking lately. Yeah. Published in Nature <laughs> Communications. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meteorite discovered in a Swedish quarry is a of a type that has never been encountered before. Here's a very interesting factoid. This is a factoid if ever there were one. In the entire history of human civilization, how many meteorites have been discovered collected on Earth? Ooh. Ooh. I bet it's I bet it's really low. Five hundred. Two. I'm gonna guess. (laughs) Not Um, even thirty seven. I'm gonna say come on, thirty (laughs) seven? I'm going to say a few thousand. A few thousand. Fifty thousand. Holy shit, oh, 50, that's a lot. Fifty thousand. Yeah, a lot of little ones. Come on, these are common. All right. <laughs> so, out of those fifty thousand meteorites, though, the one that was just discovered in Sweden is never been discovered before. Ooh. Now, let me tell you what wait, I wait, mean wait, I'm by confused. that. When you say fifty thousand meteorites. You yep. mean from the same meteorite? No, no, no. no. Just no, ones oh. that, 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 that they've either found or seen meteorites, falling. pieces yep. of you know stuff that fell out of the sky. Because you know they're like big impact events where there are thousands of pieces that people find, and I would consider that the same meteorite. Mm. That's a good that's question. That's a good where yeah, I was getting point. confused. Yeah. That's a good question. They don't they don't clarify because like if, I have a what's it called like a sicot a- alien sicot. Alien meteorite? I think that's right. From a, a big impact in Russia. Cool. Yeah, Sikhote Alien meteorite. And there are like a lot of them. Um, there are none anymore, so they're worth a lot because like they've all been scavenged uh, from 1947. But like everybody who has a Sikhote Alien meteorite, it's from the same meteorite. Oh, yeah. right. Of course. So that's, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I that have- might count as one then. Me too. I don't, my number was I don't know how they're counting that, but let me give you a little bit of background mm-hmm. here. So there are three basic types of meteorites, iron, stone, and stony iron. Uh, the iron meteorites, there's like basically solid chunks of iron, probably came – this is what the theory is. The working theory is that these all came from the iron core of a very large either planetoid or asteroid in the asteroid belt that was destroyed. Uh, and so those are ultimately all pieces of the same body, you know. 
And of course, you know, uh, meteorites are also classified by where we think it came from, right? Is this a piece of the moon, piece of Mars, piece of an asteroid, etc.? So here's the thing. There is this one type of meteorite that they think came from a large asteroid that collided and was blasted apart 470 million years ago. And pieces of that large asteroid have, you know, occasionally we find them on the Earth. These are the L-chondrite meteorites. Yeah. Okay. So, but the question is, what did, what did it collide with? And we've never found a piece of meteorite that we think came from the thing that, that the El Condrate meteorite came okay. from. Okay. And this is it. And they think this is it. They're calling this the OST 65 or OST 65 rock. Oh, uh, because, and they think that this is the other thing that crashed into the big asteroid 470 million years ago. So that that little meteorite broke up this gigantic asteroid? <laughs> I know you don't know. <laughs> so they're also calling it a fossil asteroid because it's actually – it's so destroyed. It's not it's in its actual it form. It's all bashed apart. Yeah, wow. it's, all, it's all bashed apart. But, you know, the, and Jay said, like, what's different about it? Well, it's the isotopes. It's the ratio of isotopes of different minerals and different elements in it that has – it's like a signature. That's how they know it's from the same thing. It has the exact same signature. And what affects that? What affects the isotopes of stuff? Well, a couple of things. One is where in the solar system was it when it formed? And how long was it in space? How long was it exposed to gamma rays? So the same object obviously will have the same signature. Even if it breaks into a million pieces and some of those pieces land to Earth, they'll all have the same signature in terms of those isotopes and ratios, et cetera. So this, nothing, this matches no other meteorite ever found before. They date it to 470 million years ago. Therefore, ding, ding, ding. They think it may be the thing that hit the other thing in the asteroid belt. (laughs) Now, 470 million years ago, does that number ring a bell to anybody? It sure does. Wait, is this uh, is this a mass extinction number? Very good, Richard. It, it was during it was a, it coincides with one of the mass extinctions. Mm. Of course, it does. The Ordovician, right? This yep. is the Ordovician extinction. So yeah, I thought the, it was Ordovician. Really, I thought it was Ordovician. Whatever. So the uh, <laughs> this is the whatever when it comes to pronunciation. <laughs> so th- this caused an absolute rain of meteors. And you know meteorites down onto the Earth at that time, so you know maybe a hundred times the frequency of meteorites that we have now. Uh, so, and among those were some big enough ones that they you know they think caused the extinction, the mass extinction back then. Mm. Wow! So, so yeah, two things collide in the asteroid belt. We get a, a pieces of them rain down on the Earth, causes a mass extinction. Um, and now we're finding bits of it 470 million years later. Steve, can cool. you get to the part where you say Richard and I are awesome and we won? Yes, <laughs> congratulations, you guys. But wait, there's another item first. You have to do number two. Scientists have created synthetic blood in which the iron and hemoglobin is replaced with iridium, resulting in a tenfold increase in oxygen delivery per volume. That is a complete fiction. I made it up. Ah, Total nonsense. Oh, that's so real. But uh-huh. it was loosely, very loosely inspired by a real item. I just couldn't figure out how to make it into a fiction. I already had my two sciences. But this is a very cool item. Let me tell you about this one. So uh, the only thing that I really kept in there was the iridium. <laughs> Everything else is I, I made up. But what what uh, chemists at the uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, the Berkeley Lab, have done is make what they're calling a bionic, en- a bionic catalyst. Ooh. Yeah. Or a bionic enzyme. Now, this is very interesting. Enzymes are 
protein catalysts, right? And a catalyst mm-hmm. is something that makes a reaction go faster. And sometimes with an enzyme, a reaction can go like millions of times faster than it would go without the enzyme, which essentially means that the reaction doesn't happen at all at biological timescales without, you know, the, an enzyme. But with the enzyme, it can go very, very quickly. So enzymes are critical to the functioning of life. But and enzymes are interesting because they can be very specific. You know, again, this could be a complicated protein structure that can have a tremendous amount of specificity. But there are certain reactions, certain types of reactions that enzymes will not catalyze. There are also chemical catalysts or, or molecular catalysts. These are not enzymes. They're just like you know, molecules of stuff. They're not as specific, but they will catalyze reactions that enzymes don't react, don't catalyze. Okay. So what the researchers did was combine the two. So they, what they did was biological enzymes often have copper or iron in them, and copper and iron will catalyze certain reactions. So That's what right, they, copper. They did was they removed <laughs> the iron. They removed the iron from an enzyme, and they replaced it with iridium, and it catalyzed entirely new types of reactions. Whoa. Weird. So essentially they engineered this fusion of a biological and a chemical catalyst in order to catalyze entirely new types of reactions. So the the hope is that this will open up an entirely new vista of of engineered catalysts. Jeez. And now catalysts are critical for industry because they enable you to do things like manufacture drugs or manufacture biofuels. If or just make stuff like make plastics or whatever. If you find new new types of reactions that you can catalyze, that may uh, give chemists the ability to uh, get from A to to C, right, or A to Z, with fewer steps. Save boatloads of money. Save yeah, save time, save money, save resources, less pollution, whatever. The the more efficient you can get from your starting reagents to the end product that you're going for. Obviously, that that the could be have a massive influence on the efficiency of all kinds of industries. So, this is one of those like basic technologies that it's hard to imagine all the implications of it. But we obviously don't know how it's going to pan out until you know it it, it gets used. Uh, it, but you know we'll we'll know in forty or fifty years how <laughs> profound this was. <laughs> but I hope so. that long, come on. <laughs> it sounds interesting. Well, you know, like is it, you know to how many. In 50 years, how many different chemical industrial processes are going to be using bionic enzymes? I don't know. We'll see. And uh, why call it bionic? I don't like that at all. Yeah, because it's the fusion of living and, and inorganic catalysts, I guess. I guess. It's kind I of like a, it. I agree. It's kind of a loose, but whatever it sounds I think cool, it's cool. Bionic enzymes. Because it costs $6 million. That's why. Oh, I was waiting yeah. for that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so very cool, but whatever. I just morphed that out of recognition into the. I can't believe thing. you just made that one up out of whole cloth, and I'm like, yeah, it seems totally reasonable. <laughs> I knew it. I knew I should have picked that. <laughs> All right. So Evan's not here. I got. I'm doing the quote. I want to see if anybody can identify who said this. You did. Are you ready? Huh. Yeah. When you believe in things that you don't understand. Then you suffer. Stevie Wonder. Shit. I'm not done. <laughs> Superstition ain't the way. 
Yes, I was. I was going to sing it for you if you nobody guessed it. <laughs> that is uh, Stevie Wonder. The song, nice, is superstition, Jay. of course. That's sing amazing. it for us, Jay. He's got to warm up. There is superstition riding on the wall, right? When you believe okay. in things that oh, you God. Don't, don't understand, understand. you suffer. <laughs> Superstition ain't the way. Yeah, that's it. horrible. That was you guys terrible. are so white. I don't know. I can't sing. I basically can't sing. Jay actually has a good voice. I still remember to this day when Jay when his band, was in his band. He used, he used to sing a song that I love, Bloom. Remember that, yeah, Jay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Bloom, yeah. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, SGU. My pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on and, um, well, have a moment to be be happy and proud of the fact that uh, the Skeptic Zone has reached 400 episodes. As I say, I'm, I'm, I will always be trying to catch up with SGU. I promise. Yeah, you we're at this, this. This is episode 571. Just so you know where you are in the scheme of things. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you, you go. Know, Richard, okay, if I'm, you get close, then we'll just do a few. You know, we'll pop a few out in one week. <laughs> I didn't think of that. I didn't think of that. Maybe I can overtake you. That yeah, you way, you have to do two episodes a week, and then you'll then you will overtake. Hey, us. piece yeah. of cake! And yeah, if folks yeah. want to hey. check out the uh, the Skeptic Zone, um, skepticzone TV is the URL. Thank you all for joining me this week. Every week, sure. Thanks, Steve. Hey. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.